Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. I'm excited today because I have one of my very good friends, Whitney Narcisse, on the MBA Insider Podcast with me. And Whitney is a proud MBA alum from UNC Kidd Flagler, but she's also the VP of Talent at First Round Capital, one of the marquee venture capital firms based here in San Francisco. And today I'm going to talk to Whitney all about her experience in business school, but also Whitney is one of the best I know at building and developing relationships and knows a thing or two about mentoring as well. And, and that's what really what we're here to talk about because she is one of the best I know on that topic. And I know how important it is and how valuable it is to MBA students. So Whitney, of course, anytime, it's great to have you. Thank you for being here. And for someone who is probably the only person who loves icebreakers more than I do, I knew I had to start with an icebreaker with you. So my icebreaker for you is what was your first job growing up? Good question, Al. Just wanted to say it's great to be on this podcast. You are far too kind. And I had a bunch of jobs growing up. I was a child actress. You could see me in some Nike commercials of the early 90s. But the one that sticks out for me the most was when I was a camp counselor at a church in Japantown in San Francisco. And I'm definitely surprised that they would give an eighth grader, I was probably eight, 13 or something at the time, they gave an eighth grader responsibility for six and seven and eight year olds. Very dangerous. But that was my first job growing up. That's funny. I did not know that you were in Nike commercials. I feel like I learned something new about you every single time. I knew I knew you were on Family Feud, which is what a lot of people actually know you from, but I did not know you were in Nike commercials. So that is amazing. And that's great. And I love the fact that you were a camp counselor. The apple does not fall far from the tree. It makes a lot of sense as to uh, why you were an orientation leader and so many other things. So thanks for sharing that. Let's start by just talk to me a little bit about what were you doing? How did you start off your career? What were you doing before business school, before you went to UNC Keaton Flagler? And, and, and why did you choose to go? Yes. So before business school, or I guess to start off after high school, I went to Boston College where I met you. Yes. Go Eagles. Go Eagles. <laughs> and I think that foundational Jesuit education, which I had not been exposed to, I grew up in in the public school system, the Jesuit education and the um, embarrassed that I still quote this every day, but the men and women for others aspect really spoke to me. And so I did teach for America straight out of school. It was the hot thing to do in 2007. Went to Miami and taught eighth grade science at Jose de Diego Middle School for two years. And it was the hardest job I've ever had to this day. I remember many nights crying, watching Jeopardy, crying, trying to finish grading papers and come up with the curriculum of the next day. So it really taught me grit and endless pursuit of results, but eventually wanted to move back to the Bay Area where I'm from. So 
I met up with a high school friend who introduced me to Schweikler, Price, Malarkey, and Barry. It's a mouthful. So now it's called SPMB, but it's essentially executive search. So when a startup is looking for talent, a CEO or a VP of Eng or any other executive, they work with these retained search firms. It's usually like 100K a retainer to bring one of these firms on and then they bring in an executive. So through that, I got interested in technology, interested in the venture back space and a colleague pulled me out of there to Bloom Energy, where I was for four years. Bloom Energy is a solid oxide fuel cell company. So that essentially is is short for clean tech, a much more efficient and clean way to provide energy through these Bloom boxes. And I was the first full-time in-house recruiter there built the team. We were about 300 when I joined and over a thousand when I left. So after that, I I was really trying to find myself. I think a lot of people have this eat, pray, love moment. And they're like, what should I do with my life? I feel like I'm somewhat stagnant. And I had a great group of mentors around me and my immediate manager, who definitely was a sponsor for me at Bloom, really was supportive when I thought about the idea of going to business school. I really wanted to get a more well-rounded understanding of finance, of business drivers, and just the whole landscape because I had majored in non-business areas in environmental geosciences and communications, both of which were not in the business school undergrad. So that was the onus for going. And and to be honest, one of the last things that I thought about as well was being a female in this world and how tough it is to show up and be credentialed. And so that definitely was top of mind as well. Now, thank you for sharing some of your journey and definite shout out to the Jesuits at Boston College and many other places. I think the the, what you talked about in Men and Women for Others is something that resonates with me. But I think the other uh, thing that I heard, which I know comes from this Jesuit education, is just this idea to pursue curiosity and, and of learning in terms of certainly that comes to light as in being a teacher and espousing that, but also just in terms of every now and then taking a step back to think about where do I want to go next in a thoughtful way based off of what I've done and and where I aspire to go. And that was something that I think stuck out, has always stuck out to me about your story, but also just knowing where you were educated. For me, at least it, it makes sense as to where that comes from and comes to life in. So you, okay. So you go to UNC, which is great. Did you know going into business school, I know you wanted to broaden your business background and pick up and get some education and topics that you didn't have as much exposure in, but now you work in venture capital and it's, and it's what you've done basically since business school. But did you know that you wanted to do VC when you entered business school or how did that um, come about? How did that take life? No, I did not know I wanted to do venture, but I knew that it was something that was really interesting to me. When I was in-house at Bloom Energy, I remember prepping weeks and weeks for board meetings that were coming up. And I remember this prominent VC would always come into our office once a quarter for board meetings, and it would start to smell like popcorn in the office. And I was like, 
why does it smell like popcorn today? It must be a board meeting because this one VC loved popcorn so much and we had to make sure that it was there for him on the table. And I was like, this is a really interesting power dynamic, but I should explore it. So when I was at UNC, I was so grateful and had the amazing opportunity to be a part of the consortium, uh, consortium graduate school of management. And it was just so fabulous to be able to explore opportunities for internships before I even started at Keenan Flagler Business School. So when I did that early exploring before business school began, I was just open and I was like really interested in corporate social responsibility. I was really interested in sustainability generally. So I started interviewing with these huge, massive conglomerates. And I remember going into a final interview. They flew me to Ohio and I went to the final interview and they were like, I think you think too fast. I think you might be bored here. I think you moved too fast. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, I should be in the tech industry in some form or fashion. So once I actually got to business school and I was like, I'm not going to recruit with any of the companies I would characterize as sleepy. So I focused on either one, working at a large tech company two, working in clean tech, which I was passionate about, or three, working in venture, which is surrounded and obviously fuels the capital to for these tech companies. No, I think that makes makes a lot of sense. What I do really enjoy about you explaining that is the fact of the matter is that sometimes you can learn a lot from the things that you don't want to do as you can in the pursuit of trying to figure out what you you know, do want to do. Sometimes process of elimination can be helpful. And it sounds like in your case, ruling out some of those sleepy companies was helpful in terms of narrowing in on what are the possibilities that I might want to pursue. So I think that's, I think that's really great. And within your time at UNC, how did you further explore venture capital? It's, it's a little bit different than maybe something like management consulting or brand management or even investment banking, where, you know, if you want to do those things, it's pretty clear as to where you need to go or what you need to do. But VC is still one of those that I think it's a little bit better now than maybe perhaps when you were in school and kids have it so easy these days, but no, but how did you explore VC back then? How did you further your uh, interest and, and opportunities in that space? Yeah, I really loved a couple of VC 101 opportunities that Keenan Flagler provided. So there was a professor who is still there named Patrick Vernon, who was really interested in VC and puts on this annual VC investment competition across business schools, uh, graduate schools, and also undergrads. And I did that. I did some startup consulting. I was exposed to venture terms and deals, I think was the name of the class. So there was just a lot of exposure at the school. And then in terms of how I got into it, it was 100% about networking. So I think I ended up creating a long target list. Obviously, VCs don't recruit on campus. And I think at the time in 2014, there were something like 450 VCs out there. I would argue that the number of VCs now have expl has exploded since then and is probably 
five or 10 X that if you include all these pre-seed funds and all these micro funds and all these different funds that exist today. So it was a much smaller ecosystem at the time. And what I said was, I'd love to build this target list and figure out who I want to talk to. I ended up interviewing with and at least doing exploratory conversations with five tech companies, five clean tech companies and five VCs while I was here on my first fall break in year one and just really went in with curiosity, used my business school credential as a badge or a free pass, if you will, to get people to talk to me and really got meetings with people I shouldn't have. But because I used the, I'm a hustler, I want to do this after business school, talk to me, talk to me. And I had uh, really good reasons that I asked for someone's time. I got into the door and, and essentially that's one of the ways that I got to first round where I'm still today. Yeah. And I thank you. I think that's a great story. And it really was a little bit of hustle and a, a lot of us, a lot of bit of hustle, perhaps maybe a little bit of luck, but also just good old fashioned, put together the target list, go out and try to find them and, and see what comes from it. I would love to know a little bit more. I know a little bit more, but I'd love for people to be able to know. So you were fortunate enough to land an opportunity at first round capital. And if I remember correctly, you started off as an intern, but it eventually morphed into something more. How did that whole process come about? Because it is a little, was a, I remember thinking at the time, it, this doesn't happen every day, but you made it happen. And so how did that play out when you were in school? Yeah. So just like everyone else in the first year of business school, I was hustling for an internship in the first semester. And like I said, I was maybe two or three months into school and then October break came and I met with all these VCs and tech companies, et cetera, and basically proposed to first round. This is what I would love to do. I can't be there full time yet, but here's if, if there is an internship opportunity, I'd love to take it. And here's what I can do for you. Here's how my skill sets as a recruiter can translate to what you're looking for in terms of building out an expert network. And in January of 2015, started working from North Carolina as an intern doing 10 to 15 hours a week of work for first round capital. At that point, the love of my life was in San Francisco. And I knew that I really liked working in venture and I was really enjoying it. And I thought, once I have this job, how silly would it be of me to let it go? So a couple months after that, I proposed and said, hey, I would love to do this full time. What will it take? I'll come back to, and move back to California. And then I will make it work on the UNC side. And I didn't know what that meant, but I ended up talking to the MBA program office and said, I promise you, I want to get this MBA done in the full-time program with my classmates. Can I take a, a couple of online classes, but then the rest of the classes I'll fly back for. I ended up flying back every three weeks my second year in business school across the country. I know RDU and the United nonstop flight very well, but that's what I ended up doing to make it work and turn it from an intern role to a full-time position. That's great. First off, shout out to the RDU airport. One of the Ooh. best, one of the best airports in my opinion. And I've also done that RDU to SFO flight and back before, so I can appreciate that for sure. So one of the things I love about that story is that the 
particularly for some, as it is within VC, the path is not always clear cut to opportunities post business school. And I think a lot of times people who want to do that, they have to chart their own course. And I think you certainly did. And I think in hindsight, as you said, of course it makes sense to do it, right? Like, why would you want to pass that up? Particularly if you got the love of your life in San Francisco and all of that jazz. <laughs> but I also imagine that when you're going through it, it's not always as easy as that in terms of coming up with an idea and putting it together and then having the confidence to play it out. And I would just love to know, just thinking back on that, like, how did you chart your own course in that way? Because again, it's not always easy when you don't have a playbook to go off of. So how did you not only think of it, but still have the confidence to be like, you know what? I think this is going to work out. It's such a good question. And I'm trying to relive the season <laughs> in that when I was so nervous walking into the MBA program office to propose this, I remember just being nervous, hands sweaty, knees weak, like spaghetti or whatever Eminem says. And it really came down to writing out pros and cons. And I do this a lot for big decisions that we sure. make as a family or that I've made over the years. And there were very few cons to this plan. One of the cons was I wouldn't get to know my business school friends as well and build those bonds. And part of business school is massive part of business school is about networking. And so I was like, if I cut this 50% short, does that mean I'm going to have 50% less of strong relationships, those kinds of things. And then the courses that I wanted to take simply weren't available in the schedule that I would have to build. So those were the downsides, but really there was so much more upside. One is just the actual opportunity. And like I said, I couldn't pass it up. Two is I've always felt that it's important to build a life where the personal needs are taken care of as well as the professional needs. And so that was available for me here in San Francisco. And, and frankly, I don't, I didn't know if any other venture firm would take a chance on me. I didn't know there wasn't a big platform movement, post-investment role movement until the past maybe five years. So it wasn't around for me. So I felt like I had to take it. And I think some of the biggest, best moments of my life and of my career have been when I've taken risks. Yeah, I know. I, I love that. And thanks for spitballing with me on the spot and reliving that experience briefly. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think that, yeah, it's it, the, with the risk comes the opportunity for the reward. But I also think that those are also moments like you, a lot of times when you take those risks, part of the joy of it is that you don't know what's going to happen. And the things that happen as a result of that risk could lead to even other opportunities that maybe you can't even imagine when you're going through it. And it's a little scary, but it, in your case, it, I think it worked out. I think it worked out pretty good. I think it was a worth risk that's worth taking. I'm sure the love of your life would also agree with that as well. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about what you do right now, just in terms of your role at first round. And uh, you talked to highlight a little bit about this idea behind platforms and an expert, an expert network, and just the role of, of what you were starting on and what it's grown into now. So you, could you talk a little bit about that, particularly within the context of, I, to me, at least one of the great reasons why you're such a great person to do this is because all about networking and building relationships, which I think is 
part of what you're doing in your job. And so we'd just love for you to maybe expound upon that a little bit more. Yeah, the core of my role is networking and relationships. So you've hit it spot on. First round is a venture firm. So obviously we are investing in startups. So two people with a dream and an idea come to us and say, I would love a million dollars for this wild idea that I have. Are you interested basically? And the whole decision of, are you interested? Will you invest in my company? That's not what I do. I, I come in after we have made the decision to invest in a company. And essentially after we have signed the dotted line with them and decided to partner with these fantastic entrepreneurs. And so at first round, we have over 250 companies active who I work with to support and support comes in a variety of areas from recruiting to customer development and discovery to community and events to a private software platform that we have for anyone who's a full-time member at any of our companies. And so I lead a team of folks who are responsible for really serving and delighting the, the entrepreneurial community that we support. And it first started off when I was in business school as an intern to, it first started off as just very narrowly focused building out an expert network, which now today is over 700 people who have raised their hands and said, I want to be helpful to first round founders and operators. And they range from all different functional areas, someone who's an expert in HR to engineering to and scaling teams to product leaders to legal experts and, and again, everything in between. And that was really fun. I had 550 coffee chats my first year. Wow. Very intense and fun while also finishing business school. But, but that was great. And I would essentially have this centralized expert network such that when any of our founders wanted something, we would know who to call and where and all of that. Whereas before, when a founder needed something, we would send an email to everyone. And you can imagine how many emails sure. are flying around when you have 250 yeah. founders all with different needs every day. So I built out the expert network and then over time have grown my responsibility to be what I mentioned prior, which is helping on the talent side. How do our companies build an organization that's going to be sustainable and right-sized for where they are, which is usually two to 10 to 20 to 50 people, et cetera. And then how do they think about recruiting in some of the best talent? So we have a couple of people full-time focused on that. The other thing that's really important in an early stage company is finding product market fit and talking to customers as soon as possible. And so we have someone who's focused on building out that customer discovery flywheel. But the most important thing I think that's critical and core and differentiated to first round is that we've built a community around this so that I don't need to be in the middle of an interaction or any of our partners need to be in the middle of an interaction. Rather, we have a community of startup operators who are so fantastic and they can all talk to each other. And so everything that we do from events to the community to anything is really on a spectrum of knowledge and relationships. 
one, either you are joining an event because it's purely about getting knowledge and doing, finding some tactic in that event that you can apply to your business the very next day. Or it's about building relationships because you might be the only finance person at a startup. You might be the only engineering leader at the startup. And it's part, part of it is like building relationships so you can call on other startup operators in what is oftentimes a very lonely world. And so everything that we do fits along the spectrum of knowledge and relationships. So when I think about what you just described in terms of knowledge and relationships, I think to me, that is part of the core of networking, right? In terms of part of the reason why you want to talk to people is because you either want to further a relationship with them or you want to gain some knowledge or you want to learn from them or you want to share your own learnings. And so between that and the 550 coffees that you did in your first year and all the networking that you've done, I'm just wondering maybe if you could share maybe a little couple insights for approaching networking. I know it's something that is... MBA students, they get taught it and it gets hammered home time and time again. But I also know it's still not easy for some people. So I'm just curious from your work at first round, from the 550 coffees that you had to do or whatever you do yourself, can you share anything about networking that you think could be really valuable to helping MBA students really think about this in a strategic way? Yeah. So at a high level, I think when you want to network, you have to have a reason why. And if you have a mission as to why you're networking, not just, I'm just trying to get to know people and I need to expand my network. It's something a little bit more insightful and deeper than that. Then you can use that as a guiding star to help you determine how long are you going to do this for this networking season? What does this look like? How many people are you going to talk to, et cetera? From a asker and then from a receiver perspective, I'll talk about both. So the asker is someone who wants to network and wants to build out and is the one sending the email. I would say a couple of very tactical things. One, try not to use LinkedIn. My LinkedIn inbox is thousands of messages at this point, and I would never, I, I rarely respond to people because the LinkedIn box is just so full. So there are many different tools, whether it's Hunter or Lusha or Gem or all these other tools to find email addresses, like just reach out directly to people's personal or, or work email. The second I would say is find some common ground with the person that you're networking with. So start off with your existing circles. For example, if I were to ask someone for their time, I'm going to start off looking at the BC network. I'm going to start off looking at the UNC Keenan Flagler network. If that doesn't work, then the broader UNC network, Teach for America network, Forte network, consortium, et cetera. And really the last piece tactically is to really highlight something that's unique about your background that sort of matches the person. Because I always feel like the receipt on the receiving end when someone says something that really resonates with me and that speaks to me, I just get really excited and I'm like, sure, I'll talk to you. On the receiver end, so, so that's on the asker end. On the receiver end, how I think about networking is that it's really important to me still. I always want to build my network, but I also don't have a ton of time. So what I end up trying to do is say, there are specific days in my month where I would prefer to network. And so I'm open and I've talked to figure it out on my scheduling side. I am open to say, 
networking on Fridays from 2 to 4 p.m. as an example, or I want to do a interview or a podcast once every quarter this year. And, and so that way it allows me to organize my time appropriately and, and be able to um, still make sure that I'm networking and not and that my network isn't getting stale. Yeah, no. And I, I thank you for breaking that down for both on both sides. And I think that's super practical and tactical advice. And so I hope our listeners take that to heart because I think it's super valuable. One of the other things that is, I think, inherent in a lot of the networking that you put together through first round and connecting founders and operators with um, experts in the, is this just this idea of mentoring, right? In terms of being able to match seasoned experts in something who often can provide that mentoring kind of relationship to someone else. And I would love to know a little bit from your perspective, because you facilitated a lot of those opportunities, what does a good kind of mentor or mentee relationship look like, right? From what you've seen. And, and part of the reason why is because I think that so many people, MBA students and otherwise, get told that mentor, mentors are important, but it's, that's where it stops. And so I would love to know just because you've put together a lot of these matches before, what does good look like for a mentor or a mentee relationship? Yeah, thanks for the question. I, it obviously varies from person to person, sure. but when we, in my professional life, what I'm very proud of is that we have done nine mentorship cohorts since 2016 and have served thousands of people in the startup ecosystem on the mentor and mentee side. So we've seen patterns time and time again after making these matches. I think there are a few things that make a good mentorship relationship. One is motivated mentees. It's really tough to, and I've been a mentor before where I feel like I'm pulling teeth and trying to get an agenda out of a mentee. And so someone who does a lot of the groundwork comes up with an agenda, drives the conversation, is really strong. Like that, that is what makes a really great mentor-mentee relationship. The other thing I think is someone who is organized and that this isn't a last minute thing every month where they're like, ah, it's five minutes before my mentorship call. What should I talk about today? Having someone who's organized, who sends a pre-read or sends a screenshot of something they're working with or a Google doc that I can dive into and comment on ahead of time is really helpful. And obviously I don't have a ton of time for that and they might not have a ton of time, but even just something I can react to five minutes before the call as I'm prepping is really helpful. I, I love the mentees who also circled back after I've given some advice. And by the way, my advice, people can take it, take the best and leave the rest. As I always say, it's not always going to be spot on, but if there's been anything that we've talked about that the person implements, I would love them to circle back to say, I tried this, it worked. And this is why, or I tried this, it failed. And this is why, because it helps me hone in on my strongly held beliefs and can oftentimes counteract some of my beliefs. So I appreciate that. And lastly, I'd say the best relationships are when I learn something. And so I appreciate when mentees are, are 
shooting me industry notes that are really interesting, things that I hadn't thought of, things that we discussed that all of a sudden it popped up in their newsfeed and they want to share. So that's what I think makes it work is when it truly is a two-way relationship. I, I love the idea of the two-way relationship because it is meant to be beneficial for both people. And I think uh, a mentor is selling themselves short if they don't think they can get something out of it as well. I think there's a lot to be gained. And, and I, as someone who's been on both sides of the coin, I know I've learned in both kinds of roles. I am curious though, as you think about yourself as a mentee and the mentors that you have, what are some things that you do to try to be a good mentee or to get the most out of the relationship you have you know, with a specific mentor? I think it's probably everything I mentioned above in addition to in addition to not wasting their time. Yeah. So if I know that there isn't a good fit with a mentor or I feel like they're pulling back a little bit cuz everyone has different personalities it's okay it's not going to work at 100% of the time. Sure. Then I just cut it off. I think there's sometimes an inclination both for myself and other people I've seen to keep it going because you really want to to make something happen, but that reminds me of a one way street romantic relationship too. You got to have two to tango. You of know course. what I'm saying? Now? <laughs> I do. Know, I do actually know what you're saying, believe it or not. So, one one other question for you that I would just came to mind. I am curious in your experience for you as a mentee, mentors you've gotten because just naturally it happened versus a more formal kind of ask of, hey, can you be my mentor? Or in some cases, like a mentorship program. Any thoughts on that? And part of the reason why I ask is because sometimes mentoring programs can be great, but certainly not everyone always has access to them because maybe their company doesn't have one or anything like that versus just going out on your own and saying, hey, be my mentor. And so I'm just curious, where have you seen things work? Or you just even from your own experience, what has tended to work best for you? For me, it is going out on my own. I've definitely participated as a mentee in a variety of programs, but none of those actually have stuck for me. So it really is going out on my own and either essentially cold emailing someone that years ago that has turned into something beautiful, or it's been just relationships that I've built with former colleagues friends, people who I admire in this space, who I've just, I've had work relationships with, and then those have turned into more of mentorship relationships. Yeah. no. So more more on the organic side, but I also think it's a personal preference and and that is my personal preference. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think to the earlier point though, something that I think naturally sometimes helps those organic things happen is what you said about having that mutual interest in something. And I think back mm-hmm. to some of the mentor mentors that I've had, it spawned because of a mutual interest. And sometimes that could be in some cases because we worked on the same project and, or it could be like simply one of the mentors I've had in my career. He at the time liked Kanye West just as much as I did. And so like it, even in a professional setting, but having that shared kind of connection, I think is what often can facilitate the spark for an interest. And then after that, it's putting in the work, but I do think it starts from finding, finding that commonality of some sort. One other thing I wanted to ask you about 
before we close out here. And thank you again so much for joining me. I would love to know, in terms of yourself, Whitney, what what does success you know mean to you? I know that's a little bit of a uh, that's deep, man. Deep, deep cuts question for <laughs> two fifty eight p.m. on a Saturday afternoon, but I would love to. I'd love to know because I think it's an important question to ask, and I know you've thought about this before. But I would love to hear what you have to say about that. Success is getting a newborn child to sleep through the night. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, um, it's, I get it. I, understand. I don't get it personally, but I understand why you would say that. So yes, <laughs> fair. I'm joking. Success is there. There's so much, there's so much to this question. It's, it is very meaty, but I think in terms of like how I think about success in my career, it really does boil down to the impact that I'm making on the world Obviously, what's top of mind for so many people in the tech industry recently is the passing of Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, this brilliant engineer who had tons of money to sustain his life, but didn't lead with wealth. He gave so much to the community and was hoping to revitalize and rebuild downtown Las Vegas and, and passed away recently. Like what you'll see in all of the notes and and memos written about him was just that he gave so much to the community and it was and it, and he was so kind and he would invite people he would invite his competitors to the Zappos office competitors who were trying to poach their for example their VP of customer success there was a competitor who tried to poach them and instead he said come to the office and we'll teach you how to do customer success well and no, you can't have my employee, but go on. Those kinds of stories, I think, really um, resonate with me that I want to be able to lead in a very kind way. And I want to impact the world in a way that I'm proud. And with that impact, I think when I go to heaven, I want people to come to a memorial service. That's not just a memorial service. It's a fun party. But I want people to say, you know, wit got me this job or wit introduced me to this to my husband or wit helped me through a really tough time as a founder and i really just want the impact to be profound and to be real and so that's what i care about a lot and the second thing that i wanted to mention is that i do think about this concept of ikigai which i've talked about a lot this japanese concept of finding the center of four different things. The first is what you love to do. The second is that you have to be good at it. The third is that the world actually needs that. And the fourth is that this passion should be something that you can be paid for. So again, like if you can find something in your life that you love to do, you're actually good at it, it's something that the world needs and you can get money for it. Like that to me is success. And I feel like I'm, if I'm not fully there, I'm pretty close. And I want to build a career where I can really make a huge impact. And that's something my kids and my family will be proud of and that I can really balance and own both the personal and professional piece. Poetic. Great way to end it. Um, 
Whitney, thank you so much for joining me today, for talking about your journey to UNC, getting into venture capital, networking, relationship building, and what success means to Whitney Narcisse. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Al. Hi, everyone. Al D here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.